God. Hey friends, Todd Mitchell here. Back with the Game Dev Breakdown podcast. I am alone in the studio tonight. Skype is not open. It's just me, you, all kinds of interesting news. We're going to talk about all kinds of cool stuff in just a little bit. I'm also going to get into why there hasn't been a show in longer than I want to calculate. I don't want to give you the insincere bullcrap about like, hey fans, we've been working hard behind the scenes for some stuff. Like, it's, it has not been that. I want to be real with you guys. I want to get into the kind of things that have actually been going on. It's going to be sort of a vulnerable, <laughs> unpleasant experience at points. We're still going to have some fun. But I, I do think there's a lesson to take away, and I, I want to get into that. There's a little bit of an icebreaker first, and that is I, <laughs> I've been on Twitter. I've been on Twitter pretty consistently since we last did an episode, and uh, something came up. Some creator types were talking about why different gamers want different things. And this this came up because people have different issues with difficulty and objectives and stuff. So I thought those were worth talking about real quick before we get into our other topics. I have to start with the question, do players want different things? And I think most of us would answer yes, of course. So the next question is, is there more to it than just different players want different things? That's a little more difficult. I think there is more to it. I do think sometimes you're just going to have two people in a room and they might be similar in many ways, but like one likes to play Call of Duty and the other likes to play Firewatch and look at trees and count squirrels or whatever it is you do in that game. Sometimes that's just a product of who those people are. But I think on a broad enough scale, players desire different things from games and from the act of playing them as they go through different stages of life. First off, the fact that we experience different stages of life at different ages probably makes up part of the difference I'm talking about between two similar people. But let's talk about what players want during these different stages. You probably started as a young gamer. It's not a totally safe assumption, but let's say that you did. You think the way a kid thinks. If you don't have kids and you're too far from your own childhood to remember it well, I would sum up a kid's entire life as like, wow, look what you can do. We feed that to kids because we need them to get their little butts up and walk. They need to learn to use a fork and spoon. They need to not pee on your shirt every time you pick them up. We want kids to learn how to ride a bike and have fun. We're training them to train themselves. We play up every little accomplishment they have. Once they come across a controller or a keyboard or now an iPhone, they find out that most games are this little hyper-concentrated feedback loop that's constantly like, holy shit, you did it, all right! Don't say holy shit to kids. But we're giving them this all the time, and they love that. We've talked a little about this when the question of screen time and game addiction came up. It, it makes changes in your brain. It releases chemicals. It feels awesome when we had a little challenge and we kicked its butt. Adults stay pretty conscious of the relative unimportance of that. Kids do not. They convince themselves that they're the greatest gamer in the world and one day it'll make them rich and famous and eventually aliens will come down because they've been watching you play uh, and now they need your help piloting a spaceship to save the galaxy in real life. 
Worse than that, when I was growing up, we only had that movie, which I'm describing, which was The Last Starfighter, and a couple of tournaments, like the Nintendo World Championships, the Blockbuster World Championships, and now we've got goddamn MLG and a $50 million Overwatch stadium, or whatever it is, and kids grow up fully expecting to conquer all of that with games. We've digressed a little bit, but these feelings stick with gamers for a long time. If you're the kind of person who considers yourself a traditional gamer, you probably want to be the best at it forever. I think this is where a lot of the assumption comes from that the desires of a player never change. The problem is they do change. At the very least, they get more complicated. Somewhere around the teen years, gaming becomes more social. It probably happens even earlier now, but I'd advocate for it being delayed until teen years. Kids want to play over the network, they want to talk about it at school, browse forums, watch Twitch, YouTube. For a gamer, this is one of the first ways an aging kid tries to relate to the world around them. I think largely they still think it's about being the best. They want someone to see them be the best now, but it's all about forming and maintaining relationships. Young adulthood is even more complicated, because I think what you want as a player probably depends a lot on how you spend the rest of your life. It's hard for me, because when I hit adulthood, I wanted to, tr I wanted to transition into making games by myself. But I think for a lot of young adults, gaming becomes a release in a way that it might not have been previously. You're coping with the end of college, the beginning of your career... If you've been a gamer for a long time, this is something familiar to you that it's easy to bring with you. First of all, you may have money for it for the first time, which is nice. It's something that connects you to a simpler time. I think this is when a lot of the retro gaming and the collection stuff starts to take off. If you didn't go pro playing anything, I think this is probably the time gaming starts to look noticeably different from that childhood desire to conquer the world with your controller in your hand. For the sake of politeness... I'll file the rest of the changes under older adulthood. I don't mean old. I just mean older than that. And this is present in less competitive people. I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing, but some folks just like to relax with a game. I get it. They'll pick the lowest difficulty all the time. They'll enable cheats, ignore objectives. If you've never tried this kind of thing, it is awesome when you're in the right mood. Also, as a creative person, you should probably spend some of your time just experiencing the game world or the game environment with less challenge and less demands on your like every second and every thought. This is not because the people who do this lack skill or they're not legit in some way. They're out to have a pleasant time. I mean, what if watching Sports Center required you to be hanging off the edge of your seat, mashing on buttons and frustrating yourself and it wouldn't be fun like a lot of people would hate it and gaming should be looked at closer to the same way for people who want to look at it that way so where does all that leave us and why was this part worth talking about for one thing i had just never really stopped to think my way through this before but again we all realize different people want different things but if we can understand the general trends of it we can maybe make something that's more compelling to our target audience. I watched my in-laws... <laughs> this is a, a little personal story for you. I watched my in-laws play Pac-Man on my arcade cabinet recently while we had a family get-together. First of all, I'm glad when people play that thing. Let me just say that. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of work. 
I like when people enjoy it. So my father-in-law started, and these are both non-gamers, and a lot of the progression stuff is right out the window. Like the whole systematic development of this desire, this is out the window with these guys. My father-in-law was casual with like pinball and old arcade games. We actually talked about that a little bit in one episode. Uh, And then nothing for a while. And now, because he knows me, I'm finding ways for him to like revisit some of the stuff that he used to like. And it's been a lot of fun for us. So him playing Pac-Man was a large part nostalgia. More than likely, it was a little bit social because he knows that's a way for us to connect and chit-chat about something. But because it was a connection to his younger years, sure enough, he wanted to kick a little bit of ass at it, too. And I can dig that. We had a nice time. We went back and forth and competed a little bit, and it was fun. But as he was playing, I noticed my mother-in-law took an interest in this, too. And she asked somebody, like, hey, how do I start this? And, you know, is it the same one I used to play back in the day or used to see back in the day? I was really excited. Like, I was excited to see her try that. But I think the experience mostly frustrated her. It's a hard game if you're not familiar with it and you're not ready to defend yourself. Like, you know how it goes. I felt bad for her. She was, like, physically leaning back and forth and she almost lost her balance a little bit at one point. And I think it legitimately made her anxious to the point that, like, a few minutes later, she was just, like, threw up her hands. She was out. And I haven't seen her go anywhere near it since. And I understand completely, like, this is sad. She's... Now, all this said, she's down for solitaire anytime. It's relaxing. I like solitaire, too. And mostly because I enjoy card games. But that's something we're able to talk about, me and her. And it's that's its own thing. So, what I'm saying here is... Think about your games. Ask yourself if you're giving your audience what it wants. Like the people who you're targeting. Is that what they're most likely to be after? Also ask yourself, what are you offering to people that don't fit that audience and their usual desires? So thank you, Twitter, for that topic. Let's get into a harder one. We're going to talk about the time we've missed. Everything's fine. Life is good. Uh, The future of the site the future of the show, it's all the best it's ever been. But I also want to be real with you guys, and I think this is the best way to communicate it. The show we left off with was an interview with Rayan Ali, who's finishing a book about NBA Jam for Boss Fight Books. That show was a big deal to me for a couple of reasons. Rayan's a really cool guy. He's doing something I'm very interested in. And actually, getting him for the podcast as we neared the book release, was a big step forward for doing, like, real stuff for the podcast. Most of you know my backstory. I'm located in the U.S. Midwest. I say U.S. because we have listeners, God bless you guys, all over the world. I love that. But I'm an indie by necessity. Based on location, based on availability of companies to work for, uh, connections are important for me and they're difficult to come by. I don't get to swing by industry mixers on the West Coast. When I go to a game jam, it's with brand new people most of the time. Like, it's not like, this guy from Blizzard, and this guy from Obsidian, and these guys from Microsoft. I don't get to do that. Um, Unless I'm on vacation out there. But most of the industry folks that I'm in regular touch with, that is a result of me reaching out a hand of friendship, or reaching out with some friendly shop talk on Twitter, that kind of thing. And they responded positively, and we became friends. With no expectation of anything, by the way. That's not what it's about for me. I respect these people, and I love something that they love, and I feel like we can all be friends, 
Or you could be like Cliff Blazinski and tell me to fuck off at random. <laughs> we'll leave that story for another day. I can't recall if I've told that story or not. I think I have. But so we came to a point recently where I said the next level for the podcast is bringing these hundreds of faithful listeners each week some expertise that's greater than mine. I mean, you're all really good sports about listening to me carry on, and I've got a wide variety of experiences at this point, but I want to bring you people who are doing things you're interested in, people who have really like great focused expertise in something, who are better than me at stuff that's easy enough to do, but lining up those appearances was difficult for me is difficult for me. It's hard for me to change the fundamental nature of a relationship with a friend or a colleague or an industry person that I don't know at all and ask them a favor. Like, if you've never done something like this, it's a really vulnerable and awkward experience, even when it goes well. And really, it's only gone well. People who come on this show seem to enjoy it, We've never had a bad experience. Almost everybody pipes up without me even prompting them and says, I'd love to do this again sometime. I enjoy it too. Like it's a unique chance for me to communicate about things I, I would not get to in a style that I would not get to otherwise. I do hope that comes through in the episodes, but I decided at some point I have to fully get out of my comfort zone Stop giving you guys less of a show because I didn't want to risk being embarrassed and told no. So one day I just started going for it. And I got some stellar results. Like, really. I was friendly with Michael Hicks, who we had on the show to talk about the path of Modus. He was happy to come on. We had a great time. But we were we were sort of friends before that. I lined something up with Rayan Ali, and he was so kind and enthusiastic about appearing. I knew we were going to have a great time. So those were important, but they were somewhat low pressure. What you may not know is Rayon and I had everything standing in our way while we were trying to record that show. Uh, each of us had to cancel a recording session like once on each side over a span of two weeks. We're both parents. We're both responsible for like kid bedtime and stuff. Uh, we both have obligations that we take care of late in the day. Stuff got in the way. And I started to get in my head a little bit. Like, oh, hey, John Carmack, I'd love to talk to you on the show if my son falls asleep on time. And I mean, really, the answer was and is like, yes, that's basically <laughs> how it would have to be. Uh, family comes first. The household comes first. You guys get it. I can be really creative and flexible with my scheduling, but there's room for it to get screwed up. So I was so encouraged that I worked it out with Rayon. We just had a killer show. People were really positive about it. But also, I was still sort of like pessimistic about my own scheduling and my ability to line up guests and reliably record. And unfortunately, I was very quickly proven right. Something like a year ago, maybe more, I finished reading Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. And he has fascinated me as a writer and as a person since that time. Blake ended up being the kind of guy who is super gracious and kind on Twitter. When you, If you send him a, a nice word about his work, he's very likely to send you something very kind and thankful back. And I, I think that's a common trait among people who really love what they do 
and they have a good time with it. They tend to be very gracious and they're happy to discuss it. If you catch them, you know, when they're available. Anyway, Blake and I ended up connecting on Twitter. And not only did I get to follow along with his career for a little while, from the perspective of a follower, of course, I would occasionally tweet him like a joke or... I think even one time I, I chimed in during an argument he was having. Uh, I kind of like diffused the situation with a good joke and everybody was happy. And that sort of stood out to him. And we got to chatting one day. And like more recently, he offered to show me a little sneak peek intro of his uh, new book that just came out. And I was like over the moon. Seriously, like I'm a, I'm a professional. I have journalism experience, but I refuse to stop being a fan of work that I love and creators that I like. That put me in a tough position because I knew I needed to translate more of these experiences into like show appearances. And I knew he was probably in the process of planning a promotional push for the book. And I just told him, I said, hey, if you want to do a podcast segment or you want to email me like answers to some questions and, and I can talk about that or like send me a picture I can just flash up on the screen. Anything like anything you want to do. I think I'm finally in a good position to send you some like really uniquely focused listeners who will really enjoy your work and they'll really support you because they're very supportive and cool people. And he was awesome. Like he said, like, I would love to appear on the show. I'd love to set something up. Let's talk, you know, closer to the book release. And I was psyched. And I, you know, some of that confidence came back. Well, we talked more in the meantime. He sent me more content from the book because he knew it had to do with indie development and he thought that I would appreciate that as a developer and I was blown away. Like that was such a cool, like very kind thing to do, very nice thing to do. He knew he was like making my day and he certainly did. Uh, I even caught a typo in the book. I believe, I, <laughs> I'm not completely sure, but I think I have a typo correction in the uh, final book. Like, that's how connected we had become by that time. So uh, when the time came, I was excited. I reached out to him. Uh, I wanted to set up a final time for uh, us to record. And he asked about my schedule. So my nerves came back a little bit. But I told him, I'm really flexible. I'm working from home. My schedule is mostly my own. But I was also very open and honest. I said, there are some windows that I can't do it because of parenting stuff. And we'd become friendly, so I, I didn't really feel too weird being honest about those parts. So I recognized that the schedule I sent him looked a little unusual, but it had like a ton of times I could record all week. And he, he was curious about the week. I sent him the week. I hit send. I, I closed it. I thought he'll get back to me. You know, and I figured like he'll, if he, if he can't do it at all, fine, no problem. No problem at all. But he never replied. We actually have not spoken since. And the book release came and went. He did some other podcasts. He appeared on TV a couple of times. Like, it was a big deal. People people are loving the book. Some of you may have read it. Uh, I'm guessing he saw my schedule and realized he couldn't make it work for whatever reason and didn't really know what to say, and he just moved on. Uh, I want to be clear, I do not think he's a bad guy. I think he's a cool guy and a really nice guy. Uh, I think this was a combination of him doing business the best he could and me being on the wrong end of his schedule, while my schedule was something I was already really self-conscious about. I tried to keep moving, 
But like that experience put me in a spot where I, I felt like I needed a win. And I knew just the thing. It's been over a year and a half since I made a couple of friends at Obsidian. Recently, the guy who invited me received a big promotion, uh, which he announced on Twitter. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. He's basically in charge of all the studio's PR stuff, uh, if I understand that correctly. But all the while, he and I and the other folks I hung out with on that trip, we've kind of stayed in touch just casually. Just you know, It's mostly jokes over Twitter. You know, that's, that's everything Twitter is. But um, even though I visited the studio, I did not set up a podcast interview with anyone from Obsidian back then when I was first launching the podcast. I felt like... Yeah, it'd be a cool way to kick the door in, but we, that's a lot to ask of them, and they're already being so cool. And maybe that's why I'm not good at this. Maybe every time something pops in my head, I just need to go for it and risk whatever. But uh, as you're picking up here, I I can be professional about rejection, but it does get in my head. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you don't. But uh, since that time, Obsidian announced a new game, which is going to be awesome. That's Outer Worlds. They were acquired by a new company we all know. And a few of the guys launched a new charitable streaming channel. And I wanted to talk about all that stuff. Like anything they wanted to promote. Anything they were able to talk about right now. So I, uh, I sent my friend who heads up their PR a message that said like, Hey, you know, long time, no talk. And I just set up a standing invite. I said, now that we have like a fairly reliable four, 500 downloads per episode, uh, hey, come join the party. I would love to send some traffic your way. <laughs> also, no response on this. Still nothing. Not since like writing, since like never anything. Like we didn't have not spoken again. Here's the honesty part. The negative momentum that I sort of amassed over that couple of weeks stopped me cold in my tracks, if I'm being real. At the time, it felt like, I'm just taking care of business, and the schedule's tough, and John gets busy, and I don't have a guest lined up. This made me acknowledge that I'm doing something I love, but I'm not totally cut out for it. I don't think that's any mystery to you, but I was just listening to an interview with Seth Green, and he was talking about how the word no is not personal to him. And he's been so successful, and I think in large part it's a result of that. I I believe how in how important that is, and I want to act on that, but I don't know if you have to practice it <laughs> or you have to be born with a certain like I don't I don't know how to describe it like just a, an internal shield that doesn't let it go too deep, you know? Um, because no, and like the word no, but even more so, nothing like silence feels really personal to me. I try, when I have to tell people no, and I don't, it doesn't come up that much. I'm not, who am I? But when somebody comes to me with something and for whatever reason I have to say no, I explain it. Like I'm very conscientious about that. I don't stay silent with people who DM me unless it's something stupid. Like if, if you send me, download my game and support me on Kickstarter and it's like very impersonal and you're just sending this to everybody, I'm likely to ignore that. But if it's heartfelt and it's personal, like, I'm, I am very busy, but I'm still a person and you're still a person. And if you message me, like you deserve to hear something, that's my stance. And this is something I hated about journalism too. Uh, editors are dead silent by default 
almost everyone I tried to pitch to or start some kind of a partnership with. Like I had editors who hired me who wouldn't talk to me. And <laughs> it's just stupid. So, you know, and in most cases I knew they were not busier than me. It makes me sound like I'm really mad at the people who I've discussed to this point, which is not true. Not at all. Uh, and that's what makes this story hard to tell. Like, I want to tell it honestly, but I want to make it clear that I'm not angry at the people involved in it. This is internal. This is, like, entirely internal for me. Like another person who, who just, like, dropped into my world all of a sudden was Adam Conover. Like, the the everybody... What... What is that shit called? Adam ruins everything. I almost said everyone hates Adam. That's not it. Uh, Adam ruins everything. Well, he's got a, a game development podcast. <laughs> I was telling friends, like, of all the people to do all the things, this guy randomly starts a game development podcast. And I had to sit there, like, at my most self-conscious and my most self-doubt. I just watched his podcast explode in a couple of days, like, more reviews, more downloads, better guests, everything. And I I know he's bringing like a, a cable audience with him and he's got some money behind it and he's out there in the heartland of game development and he's got the guests and everything. So any other time, I wouldn't take that personally. Of course his podcast is going to do well. Like Conan O'Brien's got a podcast. Am I mad about that? No. There's no reason to be upset about that, but like it was like everything I've done here and all this momentum and like suddenly I feel like I can't take another 10 steps, which is ridiculous. It's stupid. Like that's that's a fault with me. No good reason to feel that way. The, the long and short of it is I just got discouraged and we talked about what was going on every couple of days. John and I, uh, me and personal friends and uh, even a couple of listeners who got in touch, I... I knew I couldn't record in the mindset that I was in because it would have been bad content. Like it would have been bad vibes, bad results in time. Of course I accepted that every one of the people I just mentioned are just doing their thing the best they can do it. And not one of them, as far as I know, as far as I can figure has any kind of beef with me. They might think that like, I can't do enough for them to help them while they're doing their jobs. That's fair. That's got nothing to do with me personally. They have whatever reasons they have for not communicating with me. And most of it is not enough hours in the day. And some of it is being forgetful. Like these are qualities that I have too. Some conversations are just hard to have. And you, you know, if you do feel like you're friendly with someone, you don't want to have that conversation like no. And here's why I get that. Those conversations that didn't happen should not have stopped me from doing something I love. And if I can stay vague for a minute, I did get a tentative yes during that time that I've been sitting on for a while because this person's up against some deadlines. I don't want to put pressure on them. But if we do line it up the way this person agreed to, you are never going to see this guest spot coming that's coming up. And I'm so excited for it. My commitment to you guys is that... I'm going to do a better job of keeping my head right. A lot of people are going to say no, or they're going to say nothing. But a lot of people are going to say yes, and we're going to have a damn good time with that as a result. And we're going to get harder to ignore. It's going to be a more appealing thing for people, and it's going to seem worth their time. And then we're going to get more yeses. And that's, honestly, that's not going to be personal either. Uh, I think the lesson for all of us here is to to 
is to keep other people's choices and their opinions and their actions in the right size compartment in your life. Don't pretend they don't exist. Just strive to give them only their due influence in your life. And you don't let that derail what you do. And with that, I am excited to talk about how we're going to create more art going forward. If you haven't heard, I am starting a Patreon community for this site and for the podcast and for the development projects I do, just everything. It's going to be an extension of this community, and I didn't open it as a way to try to have everybody else pay for things that we're doing around here, or for me to earn a fortune off of all this. That's not what it is. It's intended to be something that allows you, the listener, or the reader, or the player, to get involved in some new ways and give you some opportunities that you didn't have before. Let me explain that. If you go to patreon.com slash code play you'll see an intro about what i'm doing there and the tiers i set up and the benefits that you get for joining and the goals i've set up for the community and what will happen if we meet them there's also going to be a patron feed for the posts that supporters will see and they'll see this stuff before it gets moved over to code so i mean like if you just threw in a dollar first of all thank you I will personally thank you and act like you just gave me a kidney because (laughs) uh, not because of the financial amount, because of the support itself. And with all we just talked about, I'm sure you understand what support means. You'll get entry level access to the patron feed. So it's a good way to check things out and be involved and decide if it's something you want to participate in on a regular basis. If you want to throw a few bucks every month, you can get access to the whole feed, see everything I'm doing as I do it. And I'm doing this part, by the way, because that's going to be part of what influences the direction we go. I'm going to be asking for podcast topics there. I'm going to see what everyone's working on. I'm going to pay attention to what's in the news and see who cares about what's in the news. Uh, I already did that for this show, and people had like really good feedback. So we do have several patrons already, even though it hasn't been announced on the, the podcast yet. But moving on, if you put in six bucks, I will actually come to you for a topic once a month. And whatever you're working on, or if there's something you want to learn about, or satisfy a curiosity, once a month you get to come up with a topic that we will cover on the site. In the patron feed first, and eventually it'll move to coderightplay.com. per month, if you're working on releasing a new project or just put a company together or something like that, you can get a monthly plug on this podcast and go out to hundreds of listeners in our, again, just very hyper-focused audience, like exactly the kind of people you want to get in touch with. It's a really great way to get the word out. And then there's an all-out everything pass for 15 bucks. So just if you happen to be looking to promote You want full access to the feed, you want to help direct topics for posts, and you just want to do a ton to support this group in general. I'm not expecting that anyone at all do this. Like, seriously, I want options out there for anyone who does want an option. As for the goals, if we cover podcast expenses, I will stop bullshitting and I will get us on a regular schedule around here. I will not miss unless I have a drastic situation and you can take that to the bank. So same goes for the website. There's another goal for podcast expenses covered and site expenses covered. If I get to that point, we will get more regular content up on the site as well. We'll get some guest posts up in here. We'll get tutorials out. 
uh, more news, more posts exploring learning topics. Like, I would love nothing more than to be able to commit more time to the site. Finally, I have a goal set up for community development projects. If we can get some minimal development costs, and I mean minimal, we will come together, we will decide on creative projects, we will tackle them one by one together, cover them on the site, cover them on the podcast, maybe do some streaming sessions, and we'll do the thing start to finish for people to learn from and to watch and find ways to participate in, and then we'll start another one. As long as those costs are covered, like we will do one after one after one. I would love that. I've talked, some of you guys know, I've talked to people about that before. Uh, It's something I've wanted to try for a long time. And that's as much as I'm going to say about that right now. This is experimental. It's new. But I assure you, if you decide to support all this financially, I'm going to go above and beyond to make sure you don't feel ripped off because I've been very vocal about refusing to do Kickstarters or any kinds of crowdfunding. I only want to do this if I feel like I'm offering you something you want and value. And yeah, it helps me justify spending more time on this stuff, which I very much want to do if we get some costs covered. So I'll throw out reminders, but for now, that's it. Let's talk a little bit of news. First of all, topics from GDC. We're not going to spend another show talking about unionization. I will just say GDC came and went. Unionization still hasn't happened. We're not going to keep harping on it. Another odd topic came up, and that was... I caught wind of this on Twitter, and since that time, I've not been able to find where this came up. But the person said they were surprised to hear the topic of game journalism effectively dying and wanted to express that he disagreed with that. It shouldn't be dying. Or it's not dying. I don't know what he felt. But he said most people who chimed in also disagreed with like, hey, game journalism is not dead. I want to keep this one brief. So I'm just going to hit the highlights of my thoughts on this because I was a game journalist for a while. You can go back and hear more about that in previous shows if you want. Number one, game journalism isn't dead, but it is at a huge disadvantage. Let me explain that in the following points. Gamergate, for example, was mostly bullcrap, and uh, there were way too many douchebags participating in this uh, community, but it wasn't completely, completely wrong. And I know that's going to be unpopular with some people, and I hope you will listen to my words about this. There are big-ass issues, ethical issues, in game journalism. That's true whether we like it or not. And whether the people who brought it up are douchebags or not, it is still true. Editors are largely killing themselves to do favors for their friends all the time. They haven't stopped even though it came up. Many writers will just straight up shit on any developers any chance they get. There is no diversity of politics or political thought whatsoever. And if you don't fit the narratives in these gaming journalism sites, you are screwed. Next point, game journalism is plagued, plagued with people who hate the people they're writing for. Sometimes I I wonder if it's the only writing gig they can get. I know it's hard out there for a freelance writer or if they want to be part of the scene primarily to troll their audience. There is no shortage of game writers who blame all evil in the world on all gamers. And we have talked about this at length. We will probably continue to do so. But it is hard to be focused on ethical and balanced coverage in that situation, don't you think? Next point, the rise of streamers and YouTubers and yes, podcasters and yes, even bloggers have cut into the authority and the influence of game journalism sites. You don't have to put up with writers that you resent anymore. 
That is true. For some insane reason, all the sites know about all of this, and the vast majority of them are dug in harder than ever. Like, straight up us versus them. It's crazy. And it's probably because they feel threatened and they do see sites start to shut down and things get sold and budgets dry up. Like, I have a good number of friends still in that game and I hope to collaborate with some of them again. But this is the truth as I see it. (laughs) We have a lot of the same issues we always had. So yes, it's not the same is the big takeaway. Game journalism has changed whether game journalism likes it or not. Moving on. Some of you guys may have heard of this. Disney is on the move. If you haven't heard about this, something like a week ago, it was reported that Disney has resurrected Lucasfilm games. Nobody was entirely sure what that meant. The people who reported this were all clear that this was not a reopening of LucasArts, which was shut by... Who shut down LucasArts? Oh, Disney. (laughs) You want to talk about sad for a minute? Disney all but ruined LucasArts completely. They technically kept the doors open, but it's got like less than 10 employees so they can manage licenses and like games that they still have floating around. Those axed employees went on to found like awesome studios like Double Fine, who created Rebel Galaxy, which is like must play if you haven't played it. But also former employees formed Telltale, which itself also flourished, went through its whole cycle and then shut down. And now... Disney is bringing back Lucasfilm games. And if you follow me on Twitter, you saw me say, this is probably just so they can train a new employee on how to shut down a studio. PC Gamer points out that they're hiring a lot of people in publishing roles, but they've been looking for designers since about 2017. It looks like Disney has eventually provided some clarification. They say that they really started this maneuver right around the time they butchered LucasArts, but it was for the purpose of sort of babysitting other studios as they work with them and to manage the Star Wars brand, which I don't entirely know what all that means, but it was not to develop games internally. So if you were like me and you're like, hey, let's go look at a list of old games that might come back, throw it away. Not going to happen. I will say this. Companies of a certain size just should not be anywhere near small game studios. And I know I'm wasting my breath and I'm sure I'm stating the obvious, but this only ever really ends one way, and that is in heartbreak. But speaking of other giant companies, next story is Google Stadia. First of all, some people on Twitter sounded very ridiculous when they were like, what kind of dumb made-up name is Stadia? Well, it's first of all, it's one you can Google because it does have a meaning, and it is a plural form of stadium, which does fit into the way they explain this quite well. So at GDC... Google announced they're working on a game streaming service that's set to revolutionize games on every screen and make all our wildest dreams come true. There are a lot of questions about it, and most people have decided that they already hate it, but let's run through some Q&A and speculate wildly. (laughs) Uh, When does it come out? Google ran their public beta in October of last year with Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Some of you got in on that. I meant to and didn't quite get to do it. But uh, people said it went well. That in mind, they have set the public release to be scheduled for late 2019, so less than a year away. How is it going to work? The Stadia service will run on basically any screen that is not a console. And uh, it might sound crazy, but I was wondering if they were going to make this thing available for the Xbox or the PlayStation. And why not? Like, I know the obvious reasons why not, but Xbox will let you play Steam games 
over their um, wireless display connect thing. So you can use your Xbox like a Steam Link right now. So I don't see what the huge deal about this is because these are these are different business models and I, I don't think they should be that threatened by this. But anyway, subscribers will be able to stream super sharp 4K gaming at 60 frames per second and later it's expected to support 8K at 120 frames per second. Can you imagine? Some of you have seen this kind of thing, but it's uh, I'm still getting used to 4K and it's blowing my mind. <laughs> I just picked up a 4K monitor. There is some interesting YouTube functionality for Stadia that's uh, planned anyway. Players can stream or record to YouTube while they play. People can spectate and apparently they can join a game seconds later that they were just watching and they can use that player's same save file if they want to. So these are things that, when you think about Google, Google's infrastructure, it makes sense that they would exist. But they are still very clever things that they could they could make some pretty interesting applications of these features. Pricing is still a mystery. No surprise there. Nobody knows if you'll be purchasing the individual games or paying a price per month or... Uh, some people are worried they might be charged per hour. I think that's somewhat unlikely. But the answer is not yet available. Let's talk about what it's going to take to run it smoothly. From what I've seen, they have I haven't seen a finalized list of requirements yet. But some of the early tests, uh, according to those, people think you'll need to be above the 25 meg mark. I think it's pretty safe to say if you don't have a hardwired Ethernet connection, you will be wasting your time. There, There is some talk about... There'll be some step-down options in like video quality or resolution if you have a, a lesser connection. But this day and age, you kind of need to be above that 25 meg mark anyway. I understand not everyone is, but at that point, you kind of have to understand you're getting what you get. What's the developer program like? Okay, so the development situation is kind of interesting. Google says they're working with external studios including some indies to develop and prepare games for Stadia, but it's also launched an internal studio headed by Jade Raymond, formerly of Ubisoft, Ubisoft, how do you even say that, to support these other studios and work on Stadia exclusives, which is kind of cool, I think. I have not found anywhere that Stadia has offered any special information or anything else to general developers here out in the wild with us, but there's a good article at The Guardian right now titled Google Stadia, What Developers Think of the Game Streaming Service. From the very start, I parted with most people on this because I'm actually pretty optimistic. I, I felt that a couple of insightful people have mentioned things like, uh, this does not have to take the industry by storm to work. It does not have to dominate the market. It doesn't have to convince people who are holdouts, who are pessimistic about it. It just has to perform well for the people who like this idea and want to try this uh, to play their games. That should be enough to get them established and sort of push gaming forward. I mean, this is how technology improves. Do I think consoles are over? No, I don't. Not really. We're going to keep closing the gap between consoles and like beefy gaming PCs, but this might be showing us we're not even going to depend on those high-end PCs forever. This is like straight-up cloud computing, and it's, it's interesting because it has loads of potential if we can get it right. And are we moving steadily away from physical copies of games? Yes, I do think we are. Uh, you should see my physical collection of games. It's nuts, but I'm already at a point where I haven't bought a physical copy of a game in years. And it's becoming less common that I crack open the big book of discs that I have uh, because digital copies are great. 
I don't have that drastic trust issue that a lot of people have because honestly, one day a company that's in charge of my digital licenses is going to go belly up and I will be screwed. But by the time that happens, like any given one of those games is probably just going to be worth a couple of bucks. And when I want to actually go back and revisit one, and it's not too common, I do go back, but we're going to be talking about like two, five, maybe 10 bucks to grab a copy somewhere. And I mean, that's a penalty that I can live with because that convenience is worth it to me. I'm not a physical collector and I know that's unpopular, but uh, I think that rooms full of nothing but games, floor to ceiling is too much to manage. And after a certain phase of life, like it's, you can't really do it anymore. You can't spend uh, a quarter of your house that way. But if that's you, I respect it. I just think there comes a time when it gets to be too much. So I'm already there. Google Stadia, I will try it. I'll be talking about it. We should all hope they succeed because this is a good thing for gaming and for technology. Whether we want to take part in it personally or not, this is exactly the kind of thing we should want to see. Meanwhile, Apple (laughs) recently had one of their Apple-y Apple events where they announced a new service called Apple Arcade. We're going to talk about what that is in just a second, but it's worth looking at a couple of things right up front. First, they announced it right on the heels of the Google Stadia announcement. And I think that might have been deliberate because it's definitely taking some buzz away from Stadia. Maybe to the point where there's confusion. (laughs) Because I've definitely seen people comparing the two and they have absolutely nothing to do with one another. They are very different things. Uh, Stadia is a game streaming service and Apple Arcade is basically very similar to Xbox Games with Gold, PlayStation Plus, any of these other curated subscription libraries. It has nothing to do with streaming. It's, It's just a different way to buy game licenses. So I've definitely seen people on both sides post like criticism for one that I think they were, they meant for the other. So that's the first thing. Second, as we talk about this, I'm going to point out how people cannot kiss Apple's ass hard enough. It's so funny to me. For a situation where people are almost outright confusing these two services, Apple fans could not embrace Arcade fast enough. And they can already tell you a million reasons that Google Stadia is going to fail. So let's get into the Arcade specifics and try to answer some of the same questions we just explored about Stadia. When does it come out? According to the internet, it's due out in the fall. Sound familiar? That's what Stadia is basically doing too. They say 2019, probably going to be fall or winter. How is it going to work? All this is, is a cost per month to get unlimited playtime in a library of games that Apple will curate. So everyone is throwing out the word revolutionary. Xbox is already doing this. Nintendo is already doing this. PlayStation does this. EA has their own version of this on multiple platforms. Humble Bundle does this. If you have a Kindle Fire tablet, Amazon does a special version of this just for your kids. All the in-app purchases are free. There are no ads. It's only a couple bucks a month. They have another version for (laughs) grown-ups. There are going to be some exclusives, but this is iOS, so iOS was already full of exclusives, and I'm not sure how compelling that should be. The only thing even remotely interesting about this to me is coming up here in a moment. First, what is the cost? You guessed it, nobody knows. I'm guessing we're not going to be blown away by how cheap it is. Let's talk about the developer side. Apple is apparently already shelling out funding for games to be brought over to this program and they're working out special compensation deals. The part where they're investing in this directly with developers is new as far as I know. 
I do know developer reimbursement changes like in any of these services when a game is added to a service like this. But as far as I know, the deal was always basically take it or leave it. Apple is actually paying out a little bit into the developer space to do this. And that's a nice sign because historically, Apple has not entirely cared about developers. I'm sure they're still not going to care about unpopular developers. That's its own story. My read on this so far, you're probably full of crap if you love this too much right now. And you're probably full of crap if you hate it. The fanboys online... (laughs) Uh, some of which are paid journalists, and they're saying stuff like, this is a new beginning for gaming. They're either lying or they don't know what they're talking about. It's going to be a small change for Apple, and even for a lot of iOS gamers, they're going to ignore it entirely. Think of how many mobile gamers are kids. And you think the average parent is interested in picking up a new bill every month for their kids' games on the phone? Most players aren't paying anything at all to play games on their phone right now. Conversely, people lighting up message boards and forums and social media to say, I don't want it because it's Apple. Here's a news story for you. They don't give a shit about that. It's perfectly fine not to care about Apple. To actively hate Apple is just going to waste your time because you can't impact Apple a fraction of a percent no matter how hard you try. You're not voting with your wallet. You're not voting with your feet. If they don't have you by now, they're cool with that. So you should let it go. Uh, I get it. I've been mad at Apple before. But check out some of the other cool services that are just like this. It's a pretty fun way to get a lot of value if you're a gamer with a wide variety of interests or if you're a developer trying to see more of the marketplace. I've been very happy with uh, Xbox Games with Gold, uh, the EA Access Program, the Humble Trove. I've liked every one of those. I don't do them all at once because that's ridiculous. (laughs) That starts to be a lot of money per month. But I do suggest that you check this out. It doesn't have to be Apple's. That's my only point. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about games I'm playing for a minute and projects I'm doing just for fun. First off... If you have a kid or two and they're in, or 10, however many kids you have, if they're into Nintendo Switch, Yoshi's Crafted World is like cute and everything, but it's actually also a blast and it's really clever in its design. And I know it's the full 60 bucks, but I give that game two thumbs all the way up. My son, my son came to me today and he's like, can we find a Yoshi game to play? And he's four years old. He, I got him a stuffed Yoshi when he was a little bit younger, and he's been a big Yoshi fan ever since. I said, yes, we will find one. There happens to be a new game. Here we go. We've had a blast with that. John's kind of out of pocket for the moment, so I don't have anyone to talk about Far Cry 5 with. <laughs> I'm finally playing it. It's super intense, and overall, it is really well done. Like all the crap about, like, it should make this or that political statement. People need to stop. It's a really cool game. It's got a good story. It just, it doesn't care about the world outside of it. And people don't seem to get that or they just can't accept it. It's not cowardice. That is intentional. Far Cry is intended to take you to a new fictional setting in each installment. And they can embrace that. I mean, like, it's it's a successful series created by a very talented team. And they didn't deserve all the crap they got from... Uh, all the media coverage, like, oh, they had an opportunity to this and that. They did what they wanted to do. And it's a take-it-or-leave-it situation. Like, it's a cool game, and I'm having a lot of fun. I really hope some of you guys got a free copy of Morrowind the other day. 
The uh, Elder Scrolls series is, what, 25 years old now? And if you went to their website on the day of, free copy of Morrowind for you. And that's awesome. Their website acted up a lot of the day. And I was mad. I was ranting about that on Twitter. But it was worth it because I, I did eventually get it. I loved that game back in the day. Even if it was kind of overload at the time. Like, it was the first game like that I had ever tried. But I appreciate it even more now. I was thinking it would be kind of interesting, actually, to do some like some series of some kind exploring whether one developer could make a game in that style in this day and age, like using the greatly advanced tools at our disposal and like do the the work much faster. Like it's something I'm thinking about and I'm curious to know if other people think about stuff like that too. Cause I play that now and I think looking at what this is and the whole game is like one gig or something. It's something it's insanely small. Uh, I look around and I'm like, you know, I could do a lot of this, but I'm not sure if it's worth trying out. Finally, I got to write some Sega Genesis code tonight. You heard that right. I've got screenshots of that up on Twitter and Facebook right now. They're just hello world messages, but I found an open Sega development library called SGDK, Sega Genesis Development Kit. You have to do some setup and you have to write C code, not C++, but old school C code. But it's not assembly. But I'm going through the tutorials because I can't help myself. Like, this is an ultimate bucket list item for any game developer who came up when I came up. And people on Twitter were excited about this right away. So if you follow me on social media, there's a good chance I'm going to be posting more about that. And you should check that out. Also, tell me what you're tinkering with. I love hearing about that stuff. Okay, thank you guys so much for jumping back into this with me. We're going to keep going strong. If you want to check out the new Patreon page, you can do that at patreon.com slash codewriteplay. Our website is codewriteplay.com. You can subscribe to the Game Dev Breakdown podcast on iTunes, Google Play, everywhere else. It's all over the place, including Spotify. So I appreciate you guys so much. Get in touch with me. Let me know what's going on, and we will do something fun and new very soon. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.